welcome to The Word is Resistance. My name is Nicola Torbett, and this is the podcast where we explore what our scriptures have to offer our resistance movements. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression? What does it mean for us to thrive in a way that also contributes to the thriving of all life without exception. This podcast is a project of Surge, or Showing Up for Racial Justice, and specifically Surge Faith and Surge Action. As part of Surge, we come to these questions and to the lectionary scriptures, particularly as white people, white people who are coming to realize that the price of what passes for thriving for us has been paid with the suffering of people of color here and around the world. We are white people encouraging and supporting other white people to reorient our lives away from this default reality and toward collective liberation, the thriving that leaves no one behind. This week, we're going to be looking at the lectionary texts for May 12th, And I got to tell you, this week, the passage from Revelation just stopped me dead in my tracks. Now, don't be scared. I spent a long time being afraid of the book of Revelation. I thought of that last book of the Bible as the exclusive province of fundamentalists and the Christian right. And under that framework, I, as a queer person, was destined to be one of the left behind. I wanted nothing to do with this text that had been used as a threat against me and my people. It took not just meeting, but actually living in intentional community with a biblical scholar who specialized in Revelation for me to get over that fear and resentment enough to actually read the thing. And read it I did, several times. Turns out it's a really fascinating text. And one reading in particular was especially I don't know, revelatory for me. It was January 2017, and a bunch of us radical Jesus followers and a handful of the merely Jesus curious decided to study Revelation in the context of the newly inaugurated era of Donald Trump, asking ourselves and each other what, if anything, this ancient document had to offer us in this new and daunting communal moment. We were led in that effort by my friend and generally badass anti-racist teacher, writer, and preacher, Shonda Ja, and she kicked off the study by having us turn off the lights and read the first chapters aloud by candlelight, the way the earliest Christians would have read it, in underground cells, meeting in secret, knowing the empire perceived them as a threat, and whispering these words to each other as life-giving secrets. For that little bit of time, I felt so intimately connected with people living under duress throughout time. I was reminded that we are not alone, and that no matter how debased a culture becomes, no matter how distorted its values become, there is always, always a remnant, a network of small groups huddling together, conspiring to love in the midst of tyranny. Love. But how do we love? I want to talk about this word that we throw around a lot, and for good reason. It's maybe the deepest, most tender, scariest desire of our hearts, the desire to be cherished and cared for, the desire to be loved really and truly for who we are 
with all of our complexities. It's all over our scriptures, right? My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's John 15, verses 12 through 13. By this, everyone will know that you are my followers if you love one another. John 13, 35. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. 1 John 3, 11. But I wonder sometimes how well we are doing at all this loving. I remember a webinar I tuned into shortly after Mike Brown was killed by the police in Ferguson. The webinar was initiated by a local seminary. I can't remember exactly how they framed it, but it was essentially asking and attempting to answer the question, what the hell do we do now? And the only part of that webinar that really, really sticks with me, like haunts me, is the moment that one of the panelists, a black man in a prominent position at that seminary, said with lots of exasperation in his voice, maybe white churches could stop talking about love for a while, like just for a few weeks. Could you do that, please? At a certain point, all our talk about love becomes offensive. It's offensive when there are so many people who fall outside the purview of that love, people who are not so much consciously hated as they are just ignored and disregarded, literally outside the view of the white church. These lives just really don't matter. And so they are not included when we talk about love. I'm thinking about that this week because the passage from Revelation that appears in this week's lectionary is so much about the gaze, about where people are looking. When I was learning to drive, I remember the instructor telling me to be careful where I focus my eyes. Where you look, there goes the car, he warned. If you get focused on something to the side of the road, you're gonna run the car off the road. So this week, I'm thinking about where we look. Where we look, there our love goes. It's making me wonder what and whom are we willing to see, really see? From what or whom do we look away? What or whom can we not bear to look at and why? And what does that do to our love? What does it mean about who receives care and who doesn't? And what does all of this have to do with our salvation, our collective liberation, if you will? Our ability to thrive in a way that leaves no one behind. These are the questions I bring to the Revelation text this week, and I'm really excited to explore them with you because I think this text calls us to shift our gaze in a way that will dramatically reorient our lives. I'll warn you, it's daunting. I'm not at all sure that I'm up to the task, but I think everything rides on the effort. So let's jump in. We'll be focusing on Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. going to read the passage from Revelation 7, 9 through 17, and I want to ask you to notice where the people in this text are looking. 
try to visualize the scene as you hear it. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd." and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What did you see? I saw a crowd of every kind of people, a vast, uncountable multitude, whose attention and love and loyalty are all pointed in one direction, toward the very center where we find a throne. Now, I don't want us to get hung up on that image of the throne, which maybe doesn't have such positive connotations for us these days, but just think of it as a symbol for what we value, the thing that we decide is of ultimate worth, valuable and worthy of our attention and devotion, our love. What is on the throne? Well, God, of course, but it's a little weirder than that because we're told not as explicitly here, but it is clear if we've read the earlier chapters of Revelation, that standing in the center of the throne, which we are to understand as God's throne, is a lamb. And not just any lamb, but one looking as if it has been slain. There's a slaughtered lamb at the center of the throne, or at least one that looks as if it has been slaughtered. I say that because it's not dead. It's very much alive and even charged with power. And the text tells us that it will be the shepherd that takes care of all these who have gathered here. Now, of course, this lamb is a symbol for Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the theology of the sacrificial lamb in a little bit. So if you're uncomfortable with that, hang on. But for now, I just want to linger here with the image of a lamb looking as if it had been slain. I want to linger here precisely because I don't want to. I don't want to look at it. This image seems gory, gruesome. Everything in me wants to look away. But I can't love something I'm unwilling to see. We can't love something we are unwilling to see, really see exactly as it is. And this lamb is slain. It bears scars. It's even what we might call deformed by them. 
as I linger here with the body of the slain lamb, who is nevertheless not only alive but triumphant, seated on a throne, I notice how much I want to look away. And I find myself thinking about the ugly laws. Do you know about the ugly laws? I didn't know about them until I watched this really important webinar with Andrea Ritchie, hosted by Surge Faith, on the history of policing. And as part of that webinar, Andrea Ritchie talks about a whole series of local ordinances passed between the mid-1800s and now, and designed to protect people from having to see what we might deem ugly. Laws that, for example, deemed it illegal for, quote, any person who is diseased, maimed, mutilated, or deformed in any way, so as to be an unsightly or disgusting object, to expose himself or herself to the public view, end quote. This included not only people with physical disabilities who were prohibited from example limping in public, but also those who appeared to exhibit signs of mental illness, did not fit established gender norms, or sometimes were simply people of color inhabiting what was considered to be white space. Of course, what part of what these laws did was to effectively outlaw panhandling. And there's a kind of ingenuousness in the way they are written because it's so clear that that's what they're about, that they were designed to shield some people from feeling guilty about the conditions in which other people were living. These ordinances were supposed to protect those who ostensibly were not ugly. In other words, not poor, disabled, traumatized, racialized, or gender nonconforming. In other words, to protect white, able-bodied, and privileged people from feeling guilty or obligated to help or provide care to anyone who was not them. The ugly laws. We look away from that which makes us feel obligated or guilty. We do not want to be distracted from our important pressing business. We don't want to shift our gaze away from getting ahead in a system designed to generate wealth and power in order to care for those who do not fit well within that system. And then we talk about love. This tension between our desire to focus on getting ahead within the system on the one hand, and the human need that threatens to distract us from that on the other. This tension is actually crucial to understanding the passage from Revelation. You see, in addition to being a very beautiful vision, it is also a kind of parody this image of a throne around which people are gathered. Because at the time when this was written, that throne would have been occupied by the Roman emperor, who was worshipped as a god, and whose throne was conceived to be the very center of the world toward which everything else was oriented. The emperor on his throne was the epicenter from which salvation emanated, a salvation that relied upon the subjugation and domination of the entire known world. Rome was the center of the world and the source of the entire world's salvation. The writer of Revelation is playing with and subverting this trope, I think. While we do not have an emperor on the throne anymore to whom we look for our salvation, I am not sure that we conceive of salvation much differently. Salvation is imagined to require domination and subjugation which takes the form of Christian hegemony that squashes all other faiths, or it takes the form of military dominance abroad and now at our southern border in what appears to be a new normal. 
as well as domestic strategies of containment and control, such as jails, prisons, detention centers, and sanctioned encampments, such as the Tough Shed Navigation Centers here in Oakland, where people who have been displaced from their homes are corralled and contained and hidden from the view of an increasingly wealthy populace. It is common sense that we need heavily armed police patrolling our streets, and that we need to cater to wealthy tech corporations who are interested in relocating here. We're encouraged to look to the police and to corporate development and to wealth-generating strategies for our salvation. We are encouraged to keep our eyes on the prize, terrible distortion of the origin of that phrase, where the prize is imagined as a paid place within the dominant world order that is generating crucifixions right and left. And then we dare to speak about love. And so, in Revelation, our gaze is redirected toward the crucified one, the slain lamb, the lamb of God, in a passage that is suffused through and through with love and tender care. God will wipe the tear from every eye. Our gaze is redirected toward that which we do not want to see. It was Linnie's Pinkard who first made me think about how squeamish I was and how squeamish the white church is largely when it comes to talking about the blood of the lamb. It used to gross me out, this talk about blood. And yet in this passage, we are told that the worshipers gathered around the throne were wearing robes washed clean in the blood of the lamb. We tend to think of getting bloody as getting dirty, as something disgusting. And yet here it is portrayed as getting clean and as vital to our salvation journey. Seems like we might need to get bloody. This Easter, badass activist mom and womanist theologian Zan West preached hands down the best Easter sermon I have ever heard. And in it, she suggested that salvation begins when we go and get the bodies, when we seek out the bodies of the crucified, when we take them tenderly down from the cross and attend to them. This means moving toward the ugly. Resurrection starts there by refusing to look away and instead by moving toward those who have been disfigured by the dominant systems and structures of which we are a part. And we're going to get bloody in that process. This passage from Revelation feels like an extension of Zan's point. We need to get bloody. That is what it means to be those who have come through the great ordeal. As the text says, we need to enter into that great ordeal. We need to shift our gaze toward the crucified, away from the center of empire and toward those who have been relegated to its margins. We need to shift our love and care there not because the crucified need our help. They are fully empowered in this passage, not to imagine ourselves as some kind of saviors, but because our own salvation lies there. Our own salvation lies in, as powerhouse educator and community organizer Mia Mingus has said, embracing our ugly, the ugly both inside and outside of us. To understand how that is, we got to talk about disability justice. Because, you know, I'm coming to see that the shepherd, who is the slain lamb, who is our salvation, is disabled. That's 
a disabled body in the center of that throne, a disabled, triumphant, reigning body who is going to shepherd us all. And we got to talk about what that means. Most of us have at least a passing familiarity with disability rights, the civil rights struggle that won the right for people with disabilities to have accommodations that grant them access to public spaces through, for example, the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA. Disability justice embraces these rights, but moves beyond them to ask us to reimagine how we understand disability. The dominant culture views disability as a problem located in individual bodies and minds that do not fit the norms that have been defined by that culture. At best, disability is conceived of as a tragedy. At worst, as a curse or evidence of having done something wrong or of just being wrong, being shameful. Think about the perceived sin of Bartimaeus, the blind man. Disability justice turns all of that on its head by locating the problem not in the people with unusual bodies or minds, but in the society that values and accommodates some bodies and minds, but not others. Disabled cultural worker Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samasarina says that the prefix dis and disability means not faulty, but dissidents that disabled people have dissident bodies that challenge the stale and limited structures of our society, bodies or minds that don't easily lend themselves to the kinds of labor necessary under capitalism, for example. I can't help but think about how Jesus was a dissident in his time and place, how he challenged social structures just by who he was. He was crucified not because he did something wrong, but because he posed too much of a challenge to the status quo of his time just by who he was. That brings us back to this Lamb of God business. I used to think that when people talked about the Lamb of God, it meant that God sacrificed Jesus the way people would sacrifice animals to God in order to expiate sin, and I hated that. What kind of God would do that? Who would worship a God like that, a cruel and abusive and sadistic God? But what I'm coming to realize is that no, Jesus is God, embodied, and we sacrifice him. We sacrificed him then, and we continue to sacrifice him now in the lives of people with inconvenient minds and bodies. The sin is not theirs, but ours our own unwillingness to see and bear witness to and love the ugliness that is not actually in them, but in ourselves and the world we have created, which we then project onto them and kill or exclude them for it. We cannot bear the guilt we feel, and so we push them to the margins out of sight. So what does it mean that the slain Lamb of God, the disabled Jesus, if you will, is our salvation. I want to approach this question by telling a story. 
a few weeks ago, I took part in a workshop in which the facilitators were calling uh, something called liberation logic, basically the logic necessary for collective liberation. I was super excited about this workshop. We began with the usual go-round of names and pronouns, but the facilitators also asked us to share our access needs, the things we needed in order to participate most fully in the weekend. It wasn't the first time I'd been in a group that shared access needs. It's becoming more common here in the Bay Area, but I'd never been in a group that spent so much time on it. There was the person who wanted everyone to use a mic so that everyone could hear. And there was the person who needed not to have to use a mic and on and on. And so it took us a really long time to negotiate how we could accommodate everyone's needs. And I admit, I got a little frustrated with it. I wanted to get to the juicy content of the workshop. And yeah, maybe you got to the punchline before I did, that these negotiations were the content. They were the logic of collective liberation, the reimagining of the space we were occupying together so that everyone could be a part of it. That was the work. And let me tell you, it was inconvenient. It was annoying for the part of me that wants to charge ahead at full speed. I'm saying this in the spirit of confession. But then something else happened. At the end of the first day of the workshop, we were talking about the coming apocalypse of climate disaster. And one of the participants, a woman with severe chronic pain and what would be called multiple disabilities, shared that she just assumed she would not survive the next 10 years because she would not be able to, for example, carry a go bag or run for the hills as sea levels rose or earthquakes rocked the area or fires ravaged it. Again, in the spirit of confession, I was so irritated. I didn't want to think about this woman and her big needs. I wanted to dismiss her sharing as the rantings of a drama queen, but it would not let me go. I couldn't shake it all night long, and I woke up with it again the next morning. Something inside me knew that my efforts to dismiss her were the opposite of love. They were a turning away. I've been sitting with this ever since. And then recently I was catching up on episodes from one of my favorite podcasts, How to Survive the End of the World with Adrian Marie Brown and Autumn Brown. And I listened to one in which they interview Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samara Sasina, the writer and disability justice advocate I mentioned earlier. Now, if you know about that podcast, you know that it is focused on the skills we need to survive apocalypse. And so there was this whole part about what people with disabilities, and especially people of color with disabilities, already know about how to survive. Because really they have already survived multiple apocalypses. Leah shared a story about disabled community during Hurricane Sandy, when most of the New York area lost power for days. And she talked about how friends would carry a huge battery down multiple flights of stairs every six hours and lug it to the fire station to be charged so that their friend who required a ventilator would not die. She shared a story of being at a conference with a group of other disabled and sick people where the food was too far away for them to access it. So one of them took someone else's wheelchair and walked it to where the food was and loaded it up with everyone's meals and brought it back. These stories of collective survival in community, 
with all its messiness and complications. Truth is, people with disabilities are relegated to the margins not because they're ugly. That's just a category we made up to mitigate our own guilt, but because including them would mean totally reimagining how we live. The pace, the expectations of productivity, the kinds of things that count as productive contributions, all of it would have to change. As Mia Mingus has said, we would stop talking about how to make space for everyone at the table that is already set, and we would reinvent something way better than a table. That is the work of love. Mia Mingus, along with two others, Alice Wong and Sandy Ho, have created a project that they are calling Access is Love to highlight the way that people with disabilities know how to love and care for one another in practical, life-saving ways. Wondrous love. We, those of us who are temporarily able-bodied, we need this wondrous love, these stories. We need to learn from people with disabilities how we can help each other survive what is coming. And it starts with looking, seeing. Where we look, there our love goes. Who are you looking to? Whose leadership are you following? As we change the leadership we follow, the people we look to, as we start following people of color, transgender and gender nonconforming people, people with disabilities, I can sense that the whole way we see the world is going to change. How we love and whom we love, these will change too. I don't know, but I sense that this process can lead us into a love so wide and broad that we cannot even conceive it from this place. And this is what I see, actually, in that passage from Revelation, in those vast multitudes. At the center, on the throne, is this image of utter self-giving love, the slain lamb, the God who gave God's self for love of the world, and then gathered around the slain lamb are crowds of people loving and serving that self-giving love that is also loving and serving them. It's a dance of love and care, you trying to serve me as I try to serve you, all of us looking to and loving one another, not in some superficial greeting card way, but in a way that is about needing each other to survive. Access is love. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul. Amen. As we close out today, I want to urge you to talk with the people in your community about your access needs. What will you need in order to survive the natural disasters that are no doubt coming as climate change escalates? How will you help each other survive? Please share the stuff you're thinking about with us. It will help us learn too. And if you haven't already, please contribute to the Black Mamas Bailout 
that is culminating this Sunday on Mother's Day. You can learn more about this effort to free Black women to be with their children for Mother's Day by visiting nationalbailout.org. It's part of a larger effort to end the cash bail system, which forces poor people to stay in jail without having been convicted of any crime, while their wealthier counterparts walk free. Again, that's nationalbailout.org. Please let us know what you're making of all of this. You can always give us feedback at our Facebook or SoundCloud pages. And for a limited time, we're also asking folks to share their opinions at a special survey we created to mark our 100th episode. It would really be a great help to us if you could weigh in there. Here's the link. It's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, backslash T-W-I-R 100 survey. Again, that's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, backslash T-W-I-R 100 survey. We appreciate hearing from everyone and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color and in today's case, people with disabilities. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Transcripts are available on our website, so please share that resource with friends who are hard of hearing. The transcripts also include references, credits, and copyright information. You can read more from me at my WordPress site, which is called The Longing is the Compass. The music you hear on this podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Deep gratitude also to my teachers, Lenise Pinkard, Zan West, Mia Mingus, Adrian Marie and Autumn Brown, and Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samasasina. The brilliance is theirs, and any distortions are my own. Finally, we are so grateful to have as our sound editor the fantastic and faithful Maxwell Pearl. Thanks so much, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.